If you're able, would you remain standing? And for our scripture reading this morning, I'm turning to Psalm 4. The fourth psalm, we're going to read all eight verses. Psalm 4. This is the word of our Lord. To the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of man, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put the gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I'll both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We pray that you speak to us as we consider it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you wonder why Psalm 4, two reasons. Uh, three reasons, really. We finished our, our series on First John, and I don't want to start another series till um, the end of August. One. Two. Elder Hollander uh, recommended that we read Psalm 4 last week when he preached on Psalm 5. And three, we are camping this week, and Isaac suggested that uh, we should have a devotion on Psalm 4. So these three reasons are the reasons for Psalm 4 today. Psalm 4, Psalm 4 is, uh, we find David in Psalm 4 once again afflicted by his enemies, as, we, as he was in Psalm 2 and Psalm 3. There's this... Uh, this theme in the psalm, this is the psalms by David, in which affliction gave birth to uh, the psalms. Uh, the tenor of the psalm itself indicates that an overwhelming enemy was perse- persecuting David. So we can place the psalm into two periods of David's life. So either it happened in one or the other. The first one was the persecution under Saul. Uh, so maybe Psalm 4 was written during that time. And the second one was when Absalom ran him out of town. So those are two periods of great persecution that David faced. And Psalm 4 was likely written uh, during one or the other. We, Psalm 3, if you look at the title and the, the content, you see that it was written during the persecution under Absalom. Spurgeon refers to the psalm as another choice flower from the garden of affliction. Uh, And then he says, Happy is it for us that David was tried, or probably we should never have heard these sweet sonnets of faith. And if you look at the scriptures, much of it come from the affliction of the saints. Uh, We would not not have great portions of the Bible 
if it wasn't for the affliction of the saints. Think of uh, great is thy faithfulness. We don't have that if it wasn't for the destruction of Jerusalem and Jeremiah weeping over Jerusalem. We wouldn't have Psalm 51 if it wasn't for David's affliction with sin and repentance. We wouldn't have the whole book of Jeremiah or Isaiah if it wasn't for the affliction of God's people. So we praise the Lord for bringing good out of affliction. This psalm has historically been called an evening psalm. I don't know if you noticed, but it ends with uh, David going to bed and having a really good night of sleep. So uh, Psalm 4 is historically called, uh, being associated with, uh, with the evening as a, an evening psalm. Uh, together with Psalm 5, which is called a morning psalm, the psalm was adopted very early in Hebrew liturgy as the, uh, uh, the two passages to be recited in the morning and in the evening in the Hebrew house, household. And you might wonder, why Psalm 4 before Psalm 5? Remember, in the Hebrew calendar, the day was evening and morning, not morning and evening as we think of it. You notice in the title that this psalm is directed to the chief musician or the choir master, the ones going to lead singing in the tabernacle and temple worship. That position was instituted by David and was approved by God. You can read of it in First Chronicles chapter 6 where Haman was the first um, choir director of the tabernacle and David handed these songs to them for them to lead them. And their job was to minister before the Lord. These, these uh, chief musicians were there to minister before the Lord. In First Chronicles 6, verse 14, we read that David appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. That was their job, to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. And this job description of the chief musician, of the choir master, teaches us what the purpose of music is in the worship of God. All music in worship is to have God as its object. That is, it is to be directed to God, or at least needs to be about God and His mighty works. There's lots of great hymns in our hymnal that are great to sing as a church, but they're not necessarily fit for the worship of God because they, they find themselves in this plane. Uh, 381 is one is a great hymn. It's actually the theme of the seminary. Brethren, we have met to worship. It's a great encouragement for one another, but at the same time, it's not directed directly to God, but it's sung to one another, whereas in the worship of God, hymns should be directed to God, or at least about God and His great, great works. They have to be vertical. They should be vertical in nature because singing is to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. And it's interesting, if you look at the title, this psalm was designed to be sung with instruments. It says the chief musician with stringed instruments. Now, the New King James had to put something in it, so they put stringed instruments, but the word itself, nobody really knows with a certainty what it is. I can't remember what the ESV says, if it just says naginoth, or if it has actually a, an English word in it. But the word, the scholars are not super sure, but they do think there was something you played with your hands. So, and they think either something that you pluck, like a harp, or cymbals. <laughs> Maybe we should try here, right? The church should have a, a company, a singing accompanied by cymbals. Um, but whatever it was, it was part of the original instruction that this psalm, if sung, 
to be sung with accompanying accompaniment of instruments, which tells us that the uh, current position or the historical position that sung, uh, songs sung during the worship of God should be sung without instruments don't really um, take in consideration the entirety of the data that we have in the scriptures when the very psalms we see here in this one were instructed to use instruments in singing them. So it's very appropriate that we use instruments in the singing in the church of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know that, but there are some reformed bodies, uh, churches, that don't believe that you should use instruments in uh, the singing uh, time of the Lord. For example, if there, you've heard the name Rosaria Butterfield, her pa- her denomination that her husband's a pastor of believes that should be no instruments in the worship service and only psalms sung a cappella. Uh, you've heard of the, gate, the great reformer Zwingli. Zwingli was actually a very accomplished musician, but he believed there should be no singing in the worship of God because it appealed to emotions, and you know, how dare we have emotions as we worship uh, the Lord. But it's clear from the scriptures that uh, every ounce of our being should be involved in the worship of God, mind and heart, soul and body, and that includes our emotions and clearly from the Psalms, also is appropriate to use instruments in the worship of the Lord. Notice that in verse 1, God is called the God of my righteousness. That's the only time in the whole book of Psalms that God is called the God of my righteousness. If you're using the... uh, Well, I'm not making... If you're using the NIV, I'm just saying that. If you're using the NIV, you're going to see that the NIV translates it as my, uh, my righteous God. That's a very poor translation. The New King James, the ESV, the NASB do a better job. It translates God of my righteousness because the word my is associated with the word righteousness, not with God. And this, keep that in mind, put it in the back of your mind, and I'll tell you why that's important in a moment. And notice that in verse 2, David addresses the sons of men. And you wonder, what does that mean, to the sons of men? Well, it just means mankind in general. What is the son of man, if not another man? What is the son of a human, if not another human? The idea here is that there is nothing special about the people who are persecuting David. They're just humans, just men, like he is. It's an expression much like C.S. Lewis uses in the Chronos of Narnia, where it calls the, uh, the kids the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, meaning just common people. Do you notice that this psalm is quoted in the New Testament? It's quoted by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse, uh, uh, verse 26, where it says, Be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down in your wrath. So it's, it's, it's quoted in the New Testament, applied to relationships, and we're going to see that Paul uses it very much like David does here in this passage. Okay, one last introductory item, and this is a little technical, but not so much. It has to do with quotation marks. If you have a New King James, if you look at verse 6, you're going to see that the quotation mark, uh, verse 6 says, there are many who say, and then open quote, who will show us any good, close quote. If you have an ESV, it's going to say, the, quote, uh, the quotation mark is going to go all the way to the end of verse 6. That's the proper way. That's, I think, the right way to interpret that quotation mark. Uh, quotation marks are interpretations. 
So this is interpretation, but I think that's the proper way, and, and I hope to explain that to you in a moment as we get there, why that is important. Okay, done with the, t- the more technical stuff. Now that we've, we've taken care of these preliminary issues, we can take a closer look at the flow of the psalm. And concerning this psalm, John Calvin says, After David, in the beginning of the psalm, has prayed to God to help him, he immediately turns his discourse to his enemies. And depending on the promise of God, triumphs over them as conqueror. He therefore teaches us by example that as often as we are weighed down by adversity or involved in every great distress, we ought to meditate upon the promise of God in which the hope of salvation is held forth to us so that defending ourselves by this shield, we may break through all the temptations that assail us. Did nothing change in David's condition. He prays to God. He was reminded of the promises that God's made to him. And now he's ready to fight the enemies. He has victory over the enemies based on his recollection of the promises of God. And we can easily split this psalm. Every, every pastor does that, right? You can easily split this psalm into three parts. Every, now if you drop your Bible, it opens in three parts for every pastor, uh, every preacher. But you can easily, it's true of this psalm, you can easily split it into three parts. You can see uh, a prayer to God, then you can see a call to men, and then the contrast of the peace of God and the peace of men. We see the prayer to God in verse 1. David says, Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. In the time of trouble, David knows that there is only one who can ultimately help him, and that's God himself. So whatever it is, either Saul's persecution or Absalom's persecution, David realizes that ultimately the deliverer is God, so he prays to him. The ultimate help is God. He knows that. Because God has helped him in the past. If you look at the second uh, clause there in verse 1, it says, You have relieved me in my distress. I'm praying to you because in the past you have relieved me of my distress. Uh, as in Psalm 3, if you go back and read Psalm 3, David turns to his Ebenezer to see God's help. Remember in First Samuel chapter 7, where after a great victory given by the Lord, Samuel instructs Israel to build this pillar of stone, and he calls it Ebenezer, which just means rock of help. And he says that thus far the Lord has helped us. And then he instructs them, we're going to build this so that we can look back and see, be reminded that the Lord is our helper. David had those in his life as well. In his life, he knew that God has helped him. All these little Ebenezers in his life, they could look back, you know, God is my helper, I'm praying to him. Later on in Psalm 46, David describes God as a very present help in time of need. David was confident that God was the ultimate help that he needed in any time. It was obvious to him what he needed to do, and that was to pray to the God who is his help. Let me ask you this. Is it obvious to you? Is it obvious to you that God is ultimately the only one who can help you in time of need? Is this obvious? Do you believe in that, that God is the only one who can ultimately help you in time of need? People of God, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth, as Psalm 124 verse 8 says. And he addresses God as the God of my righteousness, there in verse 1. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And here we see 
the teaching that will be fully and clearly developed in the pages of the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul. David says that his righteousness is not his, it's God's, the God of my righteousness. He has access to God because God comes David as righteous, to David as judge. He has access to God because God counts David as righteous. So we have here an indication that the Old Testament saints knew that their justification, their standing before God, was based on an alien righteousness, and a righteousness that was not their own. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, speaking of Christ, he says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation, as an atonement, as a covering, as an appeasement by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. God passed over David's sin. God passed over Moses' sin. God passed over Abraham's sin, Adam's sin. Everyone listening to Hebrews 11, he passed over those sins knowing that his son, Jesus Christ, was going to pay for all those sins. So David can say, God is my righteousness because he is going to provide for that. God imputed to David, counted as, as David's, the righteousness that was going to be earned by Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. And so David can call God the God of my righteousness. And as he prays, David acknowledges that it is only because of God's mercy that his prayer is heard. Look again in verse 1. Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Now a parent generally has his or her children's best interest in mind. Is that fair to say? We generally have that. But... At the 10th, mom, 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 or the 20th, dad, 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 or the 15th interruption. Now, we, we may get a little annoyed with the repeated questions, the why, why, why. Even the best parent might get there. But God, our Father, has hears the prayers of the saints, those prayers brought to Him in the name of the Son, no matter how many times we come before him. He never gets annoyed with us for coming before him. And David says, then, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. We can be confident that if you're going to your father in the name of Jesus, he hears your prayers no matter how many times you come to him. As our Lord says, or what man is there among you who if his son asks for bread, will give him stone? Or if he asks for a fish, Will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good, gift, good things to those who ask him? That's the mercy of the Lord. And he answers our prayers. Now, I wonder if God's, and I'm using human language here, so you know, uh, please do not charge me with heresy, uh, as uh, uh, no, humifying God or anthropomorphizing anthropomorphizing God, but I wonder if God is more tempted to say, man, Johnny is annoying because he's always praying to me. Or is he more like to say, huh, Johnny, it's been a while since I saw you. What is God, what, what would God say of you, of us? We'd say, ah, I better answer his prayer because he's not going to leave me alone. Or, oh, good to see you, it's been a while. 
praying, the praying itself is a mercy from God. The ability to just talk to God is a mercy from God. And he answers his prayer. So in having prayed, and David turns from God and talks to man in verses 2 through 5. He says, How long, O you sons of man, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Now, as a side note here, notice I, in all the three uh, occasions where Selah is present, I did not read it aloud. And the reason for that is that Selah is, is, is uh, the best of people's knowledge, the scholars' knowledge, is a musical notation that should indicate a pause. So when you see Selah in the Psalms, it indicates that you should take a pause there and meditate upon the previous context, just to give you time to slow down and think about what was just or just said. So it's mostly a musical notation to stop before continuing. So that's what that is there. But here in verses 2 through 5, David calls men to repentance. Here we move from the clauses of prayer to the field of battle. David prayed, and then he turns to the enemy. So we learn that alongside with trust in the Lord in prayer, must go trust in the Lord in action. David prays, then he acts. David prays and he faces the enemy. David prays and he calls all men to repentance. And that's a lesson for us. We cannot pray and not act according to what we have prayed. We cannot act, pray and then not put feet to our prayer. We cannot pray for our family's salvation and then refuse to share the gospel with them. We pray and then we act according to our prayers. And the sons of men here in verse 2 are... His enemies who thought they were men of high rank, but by calling them sons of men, David says, look, you're just common people. You're not that great to think that you're greater than I. We are all sons of men. Don't rob the glory that is the Lord's. These, These men rebelled against the king who was anointed by Yahweh to the throne of Jerusalem. They stole the glory that belonged to the king and made a mockery of it. So David says, How long, are you sons of man, will you turn my glory to shame? And in the words of the first David, we hear the voice of the final David, the Lord Jesus Christ. How long are you going to rebel in your sins against the anointed of Yahweh, trying to steal the glory that belongs to Him alone? How long you are going to rebel against the Lord How long are you going to rebel against the Lord? How long are you going to pursue what doesn't satisfy? Here Christ tells us that pursuing anything else in the place of His glory is worthless. To pursue our own glory is to chase a lie. How long are we going to pursue your own glory in rebellion to the Son of God? And David tells us that God is the one that sets apart the godly one, and he listens to him. In verse 3, David says, But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call him. 
David was, David was the godly one set apart by God, and God will hear David's prayer. But in more majestic way, in a more majestic way, Christ is the godly one, and the Father will hear his pleading for the saints. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, He is also able to save the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. In Romans 8, 34, Who is the, He who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, He is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. It is Christ who pleads for you. Day and night, He pleads for you with His own blood. And the Father who listen to the prayer of the one he set aside. David continues and says, If the enemies of the anointed of God would take a break from their constant agitation against him and would stay, with, would stay still for a moment and think they would stop hating the anointed one. In verse 4, David says, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. The expression, be angry and do not sin, means to be angry at the right thing with the right motive. In this case, David and the Messiah are saying, don't be angry at me. Be angry at sin, particularly your sin. Two things I want you to notice from this. Rebellion against God is unreasonable. To be angry at God is unreasonable. It is illogical. It is unintelligent. It is stupid. There's no great intellectual accomplishment in rebelling against God. You're not more scientific you know, by, by rebelling against God. You're not claiming to a, a, a higher authority or a higher basis of knowledge by rebelling against God. It is illogical. It is unreasonable. It is unintelligent. The uh, favorite position today in academia is the position of being agnostic. The idea that there's not enough out there to prove that there is a God or that there isn't. So you're agnostic. You don't know. It's interesting that there's such so much pride in claiming to be an agnostic when if you just change the language of origin from Greek to Latin, the word agnostic would be ignorant. To claim that you're agnostic is to claim that you're ignorant. It is illogical, unreasonable. The God of the Bible is present. It's to, be, to claim to be an agnostic, to claim the atheist, to be angry at him and to shake your fist at him. Psalm 14 says that the one who claims to be an atheist has to keep on repeating to himself, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. Because if he stops for a second, the evidence of God's presence is so great that his eyes are open. Continual rebellion will lead to more rebellion, to the point that God will give us over to ourselves. The worst thing, the worst punishment that God can give to us is to turn us to ourselves. Turn us to our minds, as Paul says in Romans 1, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. 
They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. As God turns us over, turns people over to their own selves, civilization disappears. You notice that? You notice the sins that comes from rebelling against God, from being angry against God? Is is the complete this deconstruction of civilization? Is it complete living for oneself in detriment of everybody else? That's what happens when we rebel against God. Second thing I want us to see here in verse 4 is what it says in the second half. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Taking time to think is of utmost importance if we wanted to follow the Lord. Christianity is a thinking religion. As a, you know, contrary to some people say, Christianity is a thinking religion. This idea here when he says in verse 4, um, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. The psalmist it refers to that time when you lay your head on your pillow and the house is quiet and there are no distractions. That moment where everything is quiet. You can, you can hear the fridge because everything else is, is, is quiet. A time when you can think without outside stimuli. And as we do that, we're able to not be angry at the Lord be angry at sin. What does it tell us about our culture's demand of always having to be stimulated? Have you ever been, did you notice that? That we live in a culture that tells us that we have to always be stimulated? That always outside stimuli has to be happening to us? Quiet is a bad thing? Calvin says this exhortation has a respect to us all. For there's nothing to which men are more prone than to deceive one another with empty applause until each man enter into himself and commune alone with his own heart. And David says, instead of being angry at the anointed of Yahweh, repent from your sins. In verse 5, offer the sacrifice of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. The idea here in verse 5, this is a couplet. So when you read, offer the sacrifice of the righteousness, that expression is explained by the following line, and put your trust in the Lord. The idea here is that the sacrifice of righteousness is putting your trust in Yahweh, in the Lord. David is speaking to his enemies within the covenant community of Israel. And so is Christ. So what, what, these enemies that David is talk, talking about to, are not the people out there. They're the people in Israel. They're the people in the Old Testament church. They're the people in the covenant community of God. And Christ speaks to us in that way as well. In essence, the Messiah here is saying this. Stop your hypocrisy. You say you serve Yahweh, but nothing in your life testifies of that. Turn to Him in truth. And that's, if that's is you today, that's what God is telling you. Stop your hypocrisy. If you're pretending to be a Christian, turn from that. Turn in true faith to Christ and serve Him with your heart. Being here does nothing for you if this is an exercise of hypocrisy on your part. Turn to Christ and live for Him, truly. God says that the sacrifice He's looking for is not an hour sitting on a pew. 
the sacrifice he's looking for are a broken spirit, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These he will not despise. So if you're here and you know who you are, you are a hypo- hypo- hypocrite, you're just pretending to be something you're not, repent, turn to the Lord, offer your life to Him, turn to Him in truth that you might receive His grace and grow in Him. And then we come to the end where David contrasts the peace of God with the peace of man in verses 6 through 8. There are many who say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increase. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The many in verse 6 are the enemies of David. They complain that no one is doing good to them. They even use biblical language in their prayer. Look at the second line of verse 6. Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. That's the Aaronic benediction in Numbers chapter 6 where the high priest was supposed to utter upon the people of Israel. So they use Bible language in their fake piety, praying to the Lord even though they are the enemies of God. And yet, the only good they wanted was the material good, as we can see in David mentioning wine and grain in verse 7. That's what the enemy of God does. In contrast, David knew the goodness of the Lord. In verse 7, you have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. David knew the Lord as his shepherd. He knew Yahweh as his righteousness. And that brought him more joy than any temporal blessing or provision could bring. And the result of knowing God like that was peace with God, peace with man, and peace with oneself. In verse 8, I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Once again, as in Psalm 3, a good night of sleep is set forth as a result of trusting in God. David knew God alone could cause him to dwell in safety. David knew that. The armies of the enemy were but vapor when compared with the strong arm of the Lord. And in God's name, one could stand before a thousand. As Isaiah says, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount on up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So, people of God, we can rest. We can rest. We can put our heads on the pillow, knowing that our Heavenly Father is watching over us. We can also act and act boldly, knowing that our Lord is for us. And so, here we have it. The evening psalm instructing us to trust in the Lord. The only way... To trust in the Lord is by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who opens the doors of heaven. He is the one who gives His beloved sleep. Do you know Jesus? Do you know, is He your Lord? Why are you playing church? He's the one who gives His beloved sleep. All glory be to Christ. Let us pray. Father, we pray that Indeed, we will be trusting you that our heads will be able to go down on our pillows knowing that you are 
sovereign over all things and in control of all things and that you love us in Jesus Christ. Pray that it would be true of all of us here today for asking Jesus' name. Amen.